Okay, so I just want to say this before we dive in. We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 6, which we've been in for a few weeks now. But I want to say this before we get into that. We just got done. We had our first ever staff retreat Thursday evening through Saturday morning. And we had a lot of fun. We did a lot of work and planning. And I just want to say this about it to each and every one of you. Your leadership loves you. Your church leadership loves you. They worked really hard to dream about what God's going to do over the next uh, 12 months. And they are excited about it. I'm excited about it. We are excited about it. And so I hope that you will start to catch the vision. Part of that will be community groups. And part of that will be celebrating our first 10 years, but also celebrating the fact that we look forward to another 10 years. And so I'm really just incredibly thankful for them. I want to acknowledge them publicly and tell you that you are in good, good hands. Okay. Okay. We got to wake up a little bit. Here, all right. Yeah. Thank you. We, we got to get a little bit more evangelical in here or it's going to be tough for both of us. So we're in Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through nine. I want to read this to you and then we'll get into it. It says this here. O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Okay. So we've been studying prayer. We've been looking at the idea, the concept of prayer now for the past few months. And really, uh, if you haven't already caught it, the heart behind this series has been that we would both know about prayer and that we would believe in the power of prayer. Did you catch that? That we would believe in the power of prayer. And last week I talked about it in these two terms. Talk about form and fire. And what that means is, is it's important to understand how the Bible uses prayer to shape the rhythms of your life and how to grow your faith, the form and the fire. Now, when the Israelites prayed the Shema, which is the section that I just read you, when they prayed that every morning and evening as a reminder to themselves of their devotion to God, they were practicing what I would consider to be good form. So they would pray this prayer. It would be every morning, it would be every evening, and it would remind them of their devotion to God. And so they were learning how to pray. They were building habits. Now, does that mean that every time they pray the Shema, that they have these incredible life-changing experiences? Well, I would say sort of. And here's what I mean by that. While they likely did not have these miraculous actions after every single prayer, they probably did not experience that. I don't know, I wasn't there, but I'm guessing based off scripture that there was a lot of praying that just felt like a rhythm or a pattern. The practice itself though, of praying the prayer, building the habit, creating the rhythm, that in and of itself was life-changing, right? Just building the muscle, just like every single repetition of a particular exercise may not rock your world, okay? You're not gonna look like Arnold Schwarzenegger after one rep, but the sum total over time, that can lead to great change, right? That can lead to great change. 
And so the Israelites recognized the value of this. They focused on the form and the habit, the rhythm of prayer in their daily life. And so the form is important, but so is the fire. Great passion for prayer is rooted in the fact that you believe that prayer works, right? That you believe in what prayer is actually meant to accomplish. I said this last week, I'm constantly asking myself, do you pray like you believe your prayers will be answered? Do you pray like that? Right? Or do you just pray to pray? Now, praying to pray is a wonderful exercise. I just covered that. But do you actually believe that your prayers are going to be answered? That they're going to make an impact? That's the fire. And we don't have to lie. You know, we don't have to kid ourselves. We don't have to pretend all of the time. We've all prayed prayers that feel like they're not answered, right? You've prayed a prayer that feels like it hasn't been answered, but that is where our belief, that is where our faith really kicks in. If we believe, and I do, that scripture is a living and active word of God, then you can lean on what it says for the foundations of your faith. And here is what Revelation says about prayers and where they end up. Revelation 5, 8 will be on your screen. It says, And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Golden bowls with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. So whether you feel like it or whether you think that your prayer wasn't answered, I want you to know that God has collected every single prayer you've offered up. And he stored them like incense in golden bowls. That's where your prayers end up. So they are never wasted. And at the foundation of our prayers are reminders like the one we see in Romans 8. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Did you catch that? When you pray, again, the form and the belief, the faith in prayer is founded in the word of God saying that he is indeed working out all things. It may not feel like it right now, but he's got your back. He's behind you. He's working out all things who have been for the people who are working for the things that he's destined, that he's put into action, that he's put into place, right? So pray. Pray and ask, but then trust that God is working out for your benefit, for my benefit. And then in Proverbs 16, 9, we read this last week. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. And I covered the idea that you can have lots of plans, but steps are the only thing that actually move you forward. Right? They are the only thing that actually move you forward. And God is establishing those. So I ask again, are we praying like we believe in the power of prayer? Are we praying like we know that God hears our prayers and that they're not wasted breath? Are we praying like we are directly petitioning God who is working for your good and establishing your steps for our benefit and for his glory? That's how I reflect. That's how we can reflect. That's how we maybe involve both form and fire 
to watch God do a miraculous thing in our prayer lives. So may we be the people who pray with form and fire and seek God to answer the prayers, even if they feel like they're not being answered. They are being collected. They are being remembered. They are being offered up. So that brings us to our study for today. Um, to love the Lord your God with all of your soul. We covered the heart last week. We're talking about what it means to love the Lord your God with your entire soul. And so as we look at the Shema, idea by idea, we're going to learn how these carefully crafted words of this prayer, what they meant in the culture in which they were written for the ancient Israelites, and the power that they hold for us believers today. That's really what we're going to do. And so the word we're going to look at again is soul. Now soul is most commonly used to translate the Hebrew word nephesh. Now I want you to say it with me. One, two, three. Nef nephesh. The word soul is used around 100 times in the NIV translation of the Bible. And 72 of those souls are connected to the Hebrew word nephesh. But in contrast, this is important. The word nephesh is used over 700 times. So while we use the word soul to capture what the original authors would have meant by nephesh, nephesh is actually much more robust than our current theological understanding of soul. So what I want to do today is take a few minutes and establish how nephesh is used in the Bible and then you can see maybe a little bit clearer picture of when it says to love the Lord your God with all your soul, how you might practically do that. What it's actually asking us to do, because I don't know about you, but loving God with my soul seems like a pretty hard thing to do without the right definition, right? To just be like, okay, God, here's my soul, okay? So here's how soul is used, or nephesh rather, is used in scripture to give us a robust understanding of what the prayer is actually calling us to. Psalm 23, you'll see it right off the bat. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my nephesh, my soul. Another scripture, Psalm 42, one. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my nephesh pants for you, my God. Some of you are really recalling some great old worship songs right now. <laughs> interestingly, interestingly enough, at its most basic and literal translation, nephesh means neck or throat. So as we know, right, the neck, the throat, it plays a really essential role in what? In our nourishment. Food, water, air, all these essential things pass through our nephesh, our throat, our neck. And so if you follow that line of thinking to the bigger idea of nourishment, you see that nephesh is actually connected to your well-being and really just your being. So it says soul, but a little bit more robust understanding, maybe your entire being. So here are a few places in scripture that highlight this expanded meaning of nephesh. In Numbers chapter 11, verses four through six, we see this. It says, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. 
We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength or our nephesh is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. So while they had nourishment, the Israelites were pulled out of Egypt. They were freed from slavery, and they were in the desert. And all of a sudden, all they have to eat is this manna that God provided for them. And they're reflecting back to the food that they had while in captivity and desiring it for their strength or their nephesh. They were doing the good old days thing, right? Isaiah 58, 11 says, The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs or your nephesh. In a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame, you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. So your nephesh is both the, the part of you that is nourished internally and the place from which you actually help nourish others. It says you will be like a well-watered garden, a strong and fruitful source of life. When you think about a garden, you see life and minerals and richness. And then it says you will be like a spring whose waters never fail. You become then, out of that nourishment, a source of life, of enriching people, of meeting a thirst. And so nephesh is as much related to the needs as it is to the soul. And then Psalm 69.1 says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck or my nephesh. Again, you see the reference back to nephesh. And so while it is literally talking about waters rising to the neck, what we see here is the metaphor that this psalmist was trying to connect, that they were having a bad day. Right? They've come up to my neck. I can barely survive. My head's just above water, God. Save me. Save me. We've all been there before, right? That's what's happening when your nephesh is under stress, when your being, when it's your you-ness is under stress, you feel like you're almost underwater. And so then in Psalm 105, we see a person's nephesh can actually be put into shackles. 105, 17 through 18 says, And he sent a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck, his nephesh, was put into irons. So nephesh is used to describe both a physical part of your being, right? Your neck, your strength your physical nourishment, but it's also used to describe the spiritual part of you, the spiritual part of your being that needs nourishing as well. Like those metaphors of a well-watered garden or a spring whose waters never fail. So nephesh, your soul, as it's prayed in the Shema, is both physical and spiritual, and they're woven together to become one. So here's Boil down into a simple idea. This is what I try to do. Boil it down into a simple idea. People do not have, biblically speaking, in this term, they do not have a soul. They are a soul. People don't have a nephesh. They are a nephesh, right? So that means that your soul and that your body are threaded together like a tapestry that's inseparable to create what I'm calling your you-ness. Your you-ness, right? What makes you you? 
Your nefesh then is your complete being. It's what makes you, you. And so this is a different way of understanding the soul than you might typically think about in our postmodern and tangible way of perceiving the world, right? Like at one point in my life, I believed that once my body died, my soul, which had been trapped in my body since birth, was finally free to go to heaven in its rightful place. You've seen the cartoons, right? A character dies and its soul leaves its body in a slightly more heavenly version of the same character. Daffy Duck, right? He gets run over by a car and then a more slightly transparent version of himself in a robe and a halo begins to float upward. It's silly, but that's sort of how I would conceptually understand soul, but that's not how the Bible teaches. That's not what this scripture, that's not what it's saying. The concept of the soul, the concept of nephesh helps us really understand more biblical understanding of the soul, the spirit, the body of a human are two inseparable parts. They are your nephesh. You are nephesh. So one of the best ways I've seen this analogized is this. It's the idea of hardware and software. So you non-computer people, I'm sorry. This is the best analogy we have, okay? Think of your body as your hardware and think of your spirit as your software. Together, they are your being, they are your nephesh. Your hardware is physical. It's tangible, it's defined, and for the most part, it's what you can sense and identify about yourself and about others, right? But hardware without software is completely incomplete. Your computer people will really understand that. If the software that animates your hardware is gone, you don't have a computer, right? In contrast, software without the proper hardware is actually just reduced to a bunch of ones and zeros on a chip somewhere doing no one any good. So if you think about the analogy of the computer for our illustration today, put yourself as a computer. Hardware without software is not a computer, it's just hardware. Body without nephesh is just a body, right? But software without hardware is not a computer, it's just software. Spirit without body is just spirit, it's not nephesh. Software with broken hardware is not computer, it's a paperweight. And hardware with broken software is not a computer, it's just a PC. Okay, I'm sorry. That one was for you, Patrick. Now the last thing I will note about this before we kind of get into what practically is happening here is that what this means for us is that what the Bible says about our physical bodies, um, it's very obvious to me that we in our current bodies are not meant to last forever, okay? Meaning, as you have probably picked up on, depending on how old you are, your body is breaking down. It's getting harder and harder to exist. So what does that mean for our nephesh though? Does it last for eternity? I think so. I think so, based off of scripture, we see Colossians 2 helps us understand what Jesus accomplishes with his death and resurrection. In Colossians 2, verses, 2, verses 9 through 12, rather, it says this, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. 
He is head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So is your current body going to pass away? Yes. Does your nephesh die? The answer seems to be no, based off of scripture. Rather, you are given a new body, right? A new nephesh as part of the resurrection of Christ once it is complete. Once he returns and we are restored, that's when your nephesh is complete. So it very much is body and spirit interwoven, but it's not complete yet. It's not done. It's a work in progress, both spiritually speaking and physically speaking. And that's really good news, isn't it? That we're not done yet? Because I definitely feel broken. <laughs> My knee reminds me every other day. This process will only be complete once Christ returns and he restores creation to its original design, to that unbroken, restored nature that God made for humanity that was established in the garden that Jesus was sent to offer reconciliation for. And the people of God's kingdom are using their gifts and their talents. They're using their being. They're using their nephesh to usher in the kingdom of God once again. So the question is, how do we love God with all of our soul? And that is a really great question. Simply put, we are talking about loving God with our being, loving God with our newness. And so practically, what does that look like? Well, I think this, let me say this before we go any further, that you're gonna see, if you were here last week, some overlap with the portion of the heart. We talked about loving God with all of your heart. And that makes sense because the nephesh contains your heart, right? But there are a few helpful distinctions for us to consider. And the primary thing for us to consider as we love God with all of our soul is that we are called to live an undivided life, not separating body and spirit, but embracing the wovenness, the unis of body and spirit into nephesh. And understanding that what you do to your body impacts your spirit, and what you do to your spirit impacts your body. So let me give you a couple of examples where I think this really plays out. The first one is this, your identity, okay? Now, before we go any further, let me read this passage from Psalm 139. It talks about your identity, okay? Starting in verse 13, it says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are so wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake, I am still with you. So if you hear nothing else today, hear this. 
God created you, body and spirit, and you were wonderfully made. He ordained the days of your life before one of them existed. And he has thought about you more than you've thought about you. And you know what his conclusion was? You are his masterpiece. You are his masterpiece, the pinnacle of his creation. And so your identity is built on who God says you are and who God created you to be, nothing else. He knows your soul better than you know your soul. And it's for that very reason that the best chance you have at knowing your worth, your identity, your value, is to rely not on your feelings and not on your thoughts and not on what other people say you should be, rather to rely on God and what he and who he says you should be or who she says you should be, yeah. right? Who God says you should be. The only way to know who you really are and to learn who you were created to be is to look at the word of God and trust what he says who you are. And to walk into that identity that he has designed for you. Your identity, who you are, body and spirit, woven together. Your nephish, designed by God and sustained by God. Is your body going to break? Yeah. And that's part of living in this broken, sinful world. And is your spirit going to break at times? Yes, but Jesus came so that we can have the promise of resurrection and the restoration out of that brokenness. And in the meantime, until that day, until that process is complete, until the resurrection comes, we are called to live out our identity, physically and spiritually, in a way that is obedient to God's good design. That is one way that we love God with our soul. This undivided pursuit of our God-given identity. He determines who you are. He tells you who you are. You don't have to listen to anything else. Not your feelings, right? Not your emotions. Not what other people are trying to tell you you are. Who God says you are. Not even your own internal thoughts that you fight against. Only God gets to decide who you are what your identity is, and you turn to him. The second way that I think we get trapped into living a divided life is how we treat sex. Now you're thinking, this isn't really a sex message, Pastor Rick. <laughs> but here's the thing. I just, I just want to touch on this because I think this is one way that our culture tries to divide us. While the enemy is using it to try to divide our inner self and call us out of how God has designed us. Parts of our modern culture want us to believe that sex is simply this physical experience and that we can detach ourselves from it or divide ourselves from it. But that is simply not possible. It's just not possible, right? When a person tries to divide the two, they are operating against God's design for sexuality and they will have a broken experience. If we want to live the full life that Jesus talks about in the Gospels, then we must stop pretending that what we are doing to our bodies does not impact 
our spirit that does not impact our nefesh. And similarly, if you don't think just, I'm not engaging my body, but I'm letting my mind wander to places that they shouldn't be going, that it shouldn't be going, then you're lying to yourself and your soul will pay the price. So whether it's physically running away from God's design for sexuality, or spiritually, mentally, running away from God's design for sexuality, one way or the other, your wholeness will pay the price. You cannot live an undivided life. Loving God with your entire soul means that you honor and obey God's design for your sexuality with your entire being. So I wanna close with this. We're gonna sing a couple more songs in just a moment, but I want to I want to close with just this encouragement, right? How do we love God with our entire being? How do we live that undivided life that I believe Scripture tells us leads us into the best version of our life? I've already said it, but I'll say it again: You were not designed to live a divided life. That is the lie that we can fall prey to where we think that in some way or another we are able to separate our spirit from our body, our body from our spirit. And then we can somehow abuse one of those parts without it impacting the other. But John 10.10 reminds us that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says that he has come, that you may have life and have it to the full. That divided life that we try out sometimes, that we dabble with, that we think may be right, is really just the lie, the enemy, trying to convince you to live a life other than God's good design for your life. Maybe the enemy is trying to steal your identity and tell you that you are not a child of God. Maybe the enemy is trying to rob you of a godly sex life, feeling like these lies that just degrade you and believing that maybe God um, needs you to remember that the enemy is trying to destroy your marriage. And maybe the enemy is trying to kill your belief in the value that God has given you. You are not designed to live a divided life. We must pray with all of the form and fire that we can muster for God to restore us, to help us understand how we can live this unified body and spirit with our nephesh, with our entire soul, the entireness of you. How do you live? How do you love God with that? God, help us understand how to be succinct and together and loving you with our whole being. The Shema serves as this prayer that reminds us, as often as we pray it, to come back to that full life that Jesus promises to help us to love God with our entire being. Remember, with our hearts, we were called to love God with our mind because in their time, they didn't understand that there was a brain and a heart. They just thought the heart is where all of your thinking comes from. 
So you love God with all of your thinking. And then we have this soul piece, just the very physical nature of us. And God is calling us to love Him with our physical nature, with our uniqueness, with our entire being. The Shema reminds us of that. And when you fail, and you will fail, I want you to remember this, that you are called to love God with all of your soul, and when you fail, God's grace is sufficient. Please remember that. You will be called to love God with your entire soul, and you will fail, but when you fail, God's grace is sufficient. So praying the prayer, praying the Shema, it's not just religious activity. A call to live a life of prayer is not just religious activity, it's actually the most active and successful fight that you can have in living the full life, in fighting against the undivided life, fighting against the lies that the enemy is trying to put into your heart and your mind, put into your soul. So here's my challenge. Then we're going to sing. I pray that you would be able to pray the Shema every single day this week and that it would be the fight that you need against the lies and the tricks and the deception that the enemy is trying to play in your life. Trying to divide you body and spirit, trying to pull you away from his design and his plan for your life. That's the challenge. That's the prayer I have for us this week. And I hope that you'll join me because I'm going to be praying for you and for me. Will you stand with me? We're going to pray. We're just going to begin this fight against the division that the enemy is trying to put into our lives to try to take away from our understood value who God says we are, trying to change our identity and move it away from God's identity for us, for his call in our life. These deceptions, these lies that are kicking away at our soul, trying to restrict that life-giving water that that the psalmist talks about, that sustains, that will never run out, that is Jesus. So God, we come to you. We know we have these divided places in our soul. That as we try to love you with our body, our spirit feels broken. And as we try to love you with our spirit, our body feels broken and we abuse our bodies. We step outside your design for our life, God the way that we treat our bodies. I pray that you would help us to live the undivided life. And God, that we abuse our spirit, we abuse our soul by believing and thinking on things that we're not meant to believe or think on or to entertain thoughts and ideas that are not meant to be entertained, God. But that we would first know you and know what you have said about us, the identity that you've given us, the value, the worth, the role, the gifts, the talents, our you-ness. God, I pray that we would embrace that, that we would seek you for more understanding. God, I pray that as we 
as we go throughout our week, that we would pray this prayer, that we would remind ourselves to turn to you, that we would call out to you, help us to love you with our entire soul, with our entire being. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, let's sing.